Hi, and welcome back to Spatulas and Speculations. I am your unofficial professor, and this is the unofficial SJM 101. Today is a requested video that I had done all of the work for, except for record, before Thanksgiving, and when I was getting ready to record uh, today, because I was supposed to record on th Saturday, but I ended up not doing that because of holiday stuff, and some I went visiting, and whatever. That's not the point. We're not talking about my life story. Uh, and so I was going to record today, so yesterday for you guys, today for me, and I was reading through my notes, and I was reading the chunk, the chapter that we'll be reading today, and something clicked, unlocked, and I ended up having to go back through and adjust my notes and throw in this fairly big theory. Now, I know that some of you guys have been getting a little bit tired of my chapter breakdowns, but somebody asked me to do this, and I'm going to do this for them. I know that you guys want more theories, and we'll, we talk theory in every episode, but I, I will try and, and figure out when to put in an, a theory episode, just an episode dedicated to theory or theories, but we've also gotten, we, I have also gotten some people requesting that I actually do a character breakdown and not just talk about doing character breakdowns, so I'm going to try and do that, but character breakdown is going to take me a long time, so... And this episode is going to be part one of two, so next week is also going to be chapter breakdowns, so I apologize if you just, like, hate chapter breakdowns. I love the chapter breakdowns. They're the most fun for me uh, to get, because they're easy for me to put together because it's just taking all of my notes that I've already compiled and putting them all together and, and throwing things together and then breaking everything down, which is fun for me. And that will give me enough leeway to actually do a full character deep dive coming up. So I don't know when it's going to happen, but within the next three weeks, we'll do our first character deep dive, I think. Sometime? I don't know. But before we get any further on what today's episode is, because there's going to be spoilers even just talking about what's happening in this episode, we're going to throw in our spoiler warning. I always do a spoiler warning. I know it's might sound repetitive, you guys might be sick of my three disclaimers, but disclaimer number one is there will be spoilers for the entire SJM universe. I don't know how, what podcast etiquette is. I don't know if, like, I, I just get nervous that one day someone's just going to jump into the podcast and not have listened to everything that I've already put out. Because I don't know, if you find a podcast, do you start at the beginning or do you start at the most recent episode and then go backlog if you want to go backlog what's I don't know what the rules are with it so I always just throw out a disclaimer just in case someone random someone new jumps in and they don't know what we're how we operate here but I will be talking about things from each of the SJM series so there will be spoilers for all three of the series big major huge spoilers the second thing is is I don't speak for Sarah I don't speak for Bloomsbury these are my thoughts these are my opinions and this is what I have gathered and pulled together. And number three, I pronounce things wrong. I apologize. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get better every single day. It is something that people point out to me quite often. But what is today's episode and how, what happened to it? Today's episode is a chapter breakdown of 53. Somebody asked me to do it. They said that the prison scene was kind of just like, it was really sticking with them and they couldn't quite figure out what it was that was sticking with them. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to break down the prison scene. I love the prison scene. And then I did all my notes for it, and then I was going <laughs> reading it, and, and I had a big old light bulb moment. Just clicked, and if you saw my TikTok yesterday, you'll know exactly what it is that we'll be spending a majority of our time talking about, and that is what happened 
on the prison aisles, what happened to the desk court. And I originally thought one thing, but now I'm thinking a whole other thing, and we're going to break it all down and explain it. So, first, as we do with all chapter breakdowns, I'm going to read through the entire... This time, it's actually the entire chapter, which usually it's just like a quarter of the chapter or half of the chapter. This time, it's the entire chapter, because this chapter is kind of short, short, longish. I don't know, whatever. So, we're going to read the entire thing, and then we'll go through bit by bit and pick out all the little things that we need to talk about. So... Chapter 53. This is in mostly in Nesta's perspective, but it does jump around a bit, which is kind of interesting the way that A Court of Silver Flames was written. It is written in third person, but there are times where she just does like breaks and like jumps between Nesta and Cassian's POV, which is just really, really interesting to me. And I think, I don't know how they do it in audiobook. I should really listen to the Akasif audiobook because I'd like to see how the narrator distinguishes between POVs when it's just like a paragraph break between them, basically. But anyways, here we go. Resand really gave this sword to me of his own free will. Nesta asked Cassian the next morning as they hiked the mossy, rock-strewn side of the towering mountain known as the Prison. It was exactly as she had pictured it in her trance, and even more horrible in person. The very land seemed abandoned, like something great had once existed here and then vanished. Like the land was still waiting for it to return. Reese said if we are going into the prison, we should be well armed, Cassian said, his dark hair tousled by the cold, wet wind off the thrashing gray sea beyond the plain to their right. And this is the best place he could think for us to try out the sword you made. So, if it goes badly, at least it will kill me and not anyone else. Nesta couldn't keep the sharpness from her tone. Reese had winnowed them here, depositing them at the base of the mountain, as no magic could pierce its heavy wards. Nesta hadn't been able to look him in the eye. You're not going to be killed, either by that blade or anything in there. His jaw tightened as he surveyed the towering gates far above. He'd put many of the current inmates inside, and Nesta had heard Farah's harrowing tales of visiting the prison on several occasions. Little frightened her sister. That Farah found it to be petrifying didn't help the twisting sensation in Nesta's gut. You remember the rules, Cassian asked as they neared the gates of bone, intricately carved with every manner of creature. Yes. Hold Cassian's hand the entire time. Don't speak of Amran. Don't speak of anything regarding the trove or the court or Farah's pregnancy. Don't speak of creatures he had put here. Do not do anything except walk and stay on high alert. And get the harp out before it could unleash chaos. The bone gates groaned open. Cassian tensed but kept climbing upward. Looks like we're expected. Down into the darkness, into hell itself, they walked. Nesta clutched Cassian's hand, her rope to life in this lightless place. One of Cassian's siphons flared with red light, bloodying the black walls, the doors they sometimes passed. Cassian moved with the fluidity of a trained warrior, but she noted his gaze darting around the path as they walked, which plunged into the earth. The entrance to the hidden hall she had seen in her scrying had been far, far below. Between an iron door with a single rune upon it and a little enclave in the stone, soft noises whispered through the rock. 
She could have sworn nails scraped behind one door, and when she glanced at Cassian, his face paled. He noticed her stare and patted his left pectoral, right above the thick scar there. Indication of who was imprisoned behind that door. Who ran their nails over it? Her blood chilled. The blue anise. Cobalt skin and iron claws, he had said. Anise savored eating her prey. Nesta swallowed, squeezing Cassian's hand as they continued downward. Minutes or hours passed, she didn't know. In the gloom, the heavy, whispering air, time had ceased to matter. Nausea rolled through her. Amran had been in this place for thousands of years, thrown in by fools who had feared her in her true form. That being of flame and light who had lain waste Highburn's army. Nesta couldn't imagine spending a day in this place, a year. She didn't know how Amran had gone mad, how she found the strength to survive. She had treated Amran badly. The small thought wedged into her mind. She had used her, exactly as Amran had said, as a shield against everyone, an Amran who had survived millennia in this awful place alongside the worst monsters in the land. Amran had found her abhorrent. Misery burned like acid. Something pounded through the rock to their left, and Nesta flinched. Cassian squeezed her hand. Ignore it, he murmured. Down and down, into a place worse than hell. And then she spied an enclave burned into her memory behind her eyelids, and yes, beside it was that iron door with the sole rune on the surface. Here, Nesta jerked her chin towards the bald stone, through the rock. When Cassian didn't reply, she twisted to him. His focus laid on the iron door. His golden brown skin had gone ashen. His lips mouthed the name of the being behind it. Lanthes. You're sure? Cassian swallowed. You're sure this is the place? Yes. Nessa didn't grant them time to reconsider as she outstretched her free hand and stepped to the stone. Her fingers passed through the rock as if it didn't exist. Cassian yanked her back, but she pushed forward in her hand, and then her wrist, and then her arm vanished, and then they were through. I had no idea there was anything else in the prison, Cassian breathed as they continued down another hallway. No doors lined it, just smooth stone. I thought there were only cells. I told you, she answered. I saw a chamber here. The light of the siphon atop Cassian's hand revealed an archway an openness, and there it was. Raised symbols carved into the floor cast shadows against the crimson light. The entire round chamber was full of them, and in its center the golden harp covered in intricate embossings set with silver strings. It didn't sing, didn't speak, it might as well have been an ordinary instrument which was exactly why Nesta tugged Cassian into a halt beneath the archway, not daring to step into the carved floor. We need to be careful. Nesta peered into the vast, empty chamber. There are wards and spells here. Cassian rubbed his jaw with his free hand. My magic doesn't skew towards spells. I can blast apart a magical shield and wards, but if it's a trap like Farah and Amran faced in the summer court... I can't sense it. Nesta tapped her foot in a swift beat. Rhysand's wards on the mask couldn't keep me out. The mask wished for me to come, so it allowed me through. 
Maybe the harp will do the same. Like calls to like, as you all enjoy saying. I'm not letting you go through that room alone. Not if that thing wants to play. I don't think we have a choice. He squeezed her hand, calluses rubbing against her own. You lead, I'll follow. What if my presence would go unnoticed, but yours sets off a trap? We can't risk that. His throat bobbed. I can't risk you. The word slammed into her heart. I... You can. You have to. Before he could further object, she said, You are training me to be a warrior, and yet you keep me from danger. How is that any better than a caged animal? The words must have struck something in him. All right. Cassian unbuckled the great sword he carried for her. He looped it around her middle, the weight considerable. She adjusted her balance. We try airway. And at the first sign of something wrong, we leave. Fine. She swallowed the dryness in her mouth. His eyes glittered, noting her hesitation. Not too late to change your mind. Nesta bristled. I'm not allowing anyone but us to get their hands on the harp. With that, she stepped to the line between the hall and chamber. Bracing herself, she pushed a foot forward. It was like stepping through mud. But the wards allowed her through. Nesta took another step, arm extended behind her to hold Cassian's hand, the pressure of the spells pushed against her calves, her hips, her body, squeezing her lungs. These are like no wards I've felt before, she whispered, standing still, as she waited for any hint of a triggered trap. They feel old, incredibly old. They probably predate this place being used as a prison. What was it before? No one knows. It's always been here. But this chamber... He surveyed the space beyond her. I didn't know places like this existed here. Maybe... He frowned. Part of me wonders if the prison was either built or stocked with its inmates to hide the harp's presence. There are so many terrible powers here, and the wards on the mountain itself... I wonder if someone hid the harp knowing that it never be noticed with so much awful magic around it. Her mouth had dried again. But who put it here? Your guess is as good as mine. Someone who existed before the High Lords ruled. Reese told me once that this island might have even been an eighth court. You don't recognize these markings on the ground? Not at all. She loosened a long breath. I don't think any traps were triggered. He nodded. Be quick. Their gazes held, and Nesta turned from the raw worry in his eyes as she pulled her hand from his and entered the chamber. The wards lay heavy against Nesta's skin, each step across the stone floor to the shining harp. It looks newly polished, she observed to Cassian, who watched from the archway. How is that possible? It exists outside the binding of time, just as the cauldron does. Nesta studied the carvings on the floor. They all seemed to spiral towards one point. I think these are stars, she breathed. Constellations. And like a golden sun, the harp lay at the center of the system. This is the night court, Cassian said dryly. But it felt different from the night court magic somehow. 
Nesta paused before the harp, the wards pressing into her skin as she surveyed its golden frame and silver strings. The harp sat atop a large rendering of an eight-pointed star. Its cardinal points stretched longer than the other four, with the harp situated directly at the heart of the star. The hair on the back of her neck stood, and she could have sworn the blood in her body reversed course. She had a creeping feeling she had been brought here not by the cauldron or the mother or the harp, but by something vaster, something that stretched into the stars carved all around them. Its cool, light hands guided her wrist as she picked up the harp. Her fingers brushed the icy metal. The harp hummed against her skin as if it still held its final note from the last time it had been used. Faye screamed, pounding on the stone that hadn't been there a moment before, pleading for their children's sake, begging to be let out, let out, let out. Nesta had the sensation of falling, tumbling through air and stars and time. It was a trap, and our people were too blind to see it. Eons and stars and darkness plunged around her. The Fae clawed at the stone, tearing their nails on rock where there had once been a door but the way back was now forever sealed, and they begged as they tried to pass their children through the solid wall, if only their children could be spared. Light flashed, blinding, and then it cleared. She stood in a white stone palace, a great hall where five thrones graced a dais. The sixth throne in the center was occupied by a pointy-eared crone, a golden spiked crown rested on her head, blazing like the hate in her black eyes. The fey crone stiffened, blue velvet robes shifting with the movement. Her eyes, clear despite her wrinkled face, sharpened right on Nesta. You have the harp, the queen said, voice like crinkling paper, and Nesta knew who she stood frozen before. What crown lay on her thin white hair? Breland's gnarled fingers curled into the arms of her throne, and her gaze narrowed. The queen smiled, revealing a mouth of half-rotted teeth. Nesta backed up a step, or tried to. She couldn't move. Breland's horrible smile deepened, and she said conversationally, My spies have told me who your friends are, the half-breed and broken Illyrian. Such lovely girls. Nesta's blood churned as she knew her eyes were blazing with her power as she snarled. You come near them and I'll rip out your throat. I will hunt you down and gut you. Breland taunted. Such bonds are foolish. As foolish as you still holding on to the harp, which sings answers to all my questions. I know where you are, Nesta Archeron. Darkness erupted. Unmovable, solid darkness slammed into Nesta as hard as a wall. Screams still echoed. No, no. That was a male bellowing her name. And she had not slammed into darkness. She had collided with the stone and now lay on top the floor, the harp in her hands. Nesta! Red light flared, washing like a bloody tide upon the stones, her face, the ceilings. But Cassian siphons could not break through the wards. He could not reach her. Nesta clutched the harp to her chest, the last of its reverberations echoing through her. She had to let go. 
Somehow, in touching the harp while Breland was wearing the crown, she had opened a pathway between their minds, their eyes. She could see Breland, and Breland could see her, could sense where she was. She had to let go. She couldn't do more than twitch her fingertips as invisible, impressive weight bore into her, like it flattened her to dust upon the ground. Let go, she silently bade it, gritting her teeth, fingers brushing over the nearest string. Free me, you blasted thing. A beautiful, haughty voice answered, full of music so lovely it broke her heart to hear. I do not appreciate your tone. With that, the harp pushed into her harder, and Nestor roared silently, her nails scraped over the string again. Let me go! Shall I open a door for you, then? Release that which is caught? Yes, damn you, yes! It has been a long while, sister, since I played. I shall need time to remember the right combinations. Don't play games, Nesta chilled at the word it had used. Sister, like she and this thing were one and the same. The small strings are for the games, light movements and leaping. But the longer, the final ones, such deep wonders and horrors we could strum into being. Such great and monstrous music I thwart with my last minstrel. Shall I show you? No, just open these wards. As you wish, pluck the first string, then. Nesta didn't hesitate as her fingers curled over the first string, grasping and then releasing it. A musical laugh filled her mind, but the weight lifted and vanished. Nesta heaved a breath, shoving upwards, and found herself free to move as she wished, the harp still in her hands, dormant. The very air seemed lighter, looser, like opening another doorway had shut the one to Breelin. Nesta! Cassian thundered from across the chamber. I'm fine, she called out, shaking off her lingering tremors. But I think someone very wicked used this last. She stared at the darkness above. I think they used it to trap their enemies and their enemies' children into the stone itself. Was that what had happened to her just now? The harp had been pushing her into the rock, fusing her soul with it. She shivered. Cassian demanded, Are you hurt? What happened? She groaned, rising slowly. No, I... I touched it, and it held a memory, a bad one, one she'd never forget. And we need to leave. It showed me Breland wearing the crown. She saw me here. The words tumbled out as Nesta waded back through the ward-heavy cavern, feeling that center spot, the star at its heart, like a physical presence at her back. Those vast, light hands seemed to pull at her, trying to make her return, but she ignored them. Explaining to Cassian what she had heard from the harp, what she had seen in the vision with Breelin. Cassian's breathing remained uneven. He did not relax one muscle until she had stepped back into the tunnel hallway, until his hands were again around her. He didn't even bother to look at the harp or comment on Breelin. He only surveyed her for any sign of harm was as intimate as any look he had ever given her, even when he was buried deep inside of her, moving in her. His gaze had never been so openly raw. She tucked the harp into her side and couldn't stop the hand she had lifted to his cheek. I'm fine. 
He pressed a kiss into the heart of her palm. I don't know why I doubted you. He pulled from her touch. Let's get the hell out of here. Dark promise laced the words, and she knew what they'd be doing as soon as they dumped the harp off to become Rhysand's problem. Her cheeks heated, something like pleasure going through her. That he would pick her, them. That he wanted the reassurance of her body that much. She interlaced her fingers through his, squeezing as tightly as their hands could be pressed together. He squeezed back, and tugged her down the passageway, away from the sight of pain and long-forgotten memory. The sword bounced against her thigh, and she said, breaking the silence, I named it Ataraxia. He glanced over his shoulder at her. That sword? What's it mean? It's from the old language. I found it in a book the other day in the library. I liked the sound of it. Ataraxia, he said, as though he were trying out the weapon itself. I like it. I'm so glad you approve. It's better than killer or silver majesty, he threw back. His grin was brighter than the glowing siphon atop his left hand. Her pulse raced. Ataraxia, he said again. And Nesta could have sworn the blade hanging from her belt hummed in answer as if it liked the sound of his voice as much as she did. They neared the end of the tunnel, but Nesta paused him with a tug on his hand. What he asked, scanning the cavern, but she rose onto her toes and kissed him lightly. He blinked with almost comic shock as she pulled away. What's that for? Nesta shrugged, her cheeks heating. Gwen and Emery are my friends, she said quietly. She tucked away her horror that Breland had eyes on them, she swallowed. I think you might be too, Cassian. Cassian's silence was palpable, and she cursed herself for laying bare that wish, that realization. Wish she could wipe away the words, the stupidity. I've always been your friend, Nesta, he said hoarsely. Always. She couldn't bear to see what was in his eyes. I know. Cassian brushed his mouth over her temple as they exited the tunnel at last, entering the main path of the prison, its heavy gloom. Nesta whispered, finally daring to say it, and I've always... Cassian threw her behind him so fast the rest of the words died in her throat. Run! His heartbeat, his pure terror filled the air. Nesta, run! She whirled towards what he faced, his Illyrian blade gleaming ruby in the light of his siphon as if a blade could do anything. The door to Lanthe's cell lay open. Okay. <laughs> Let's pause there. <laughs> I'm like gonna, I'm just gonna leave you hanging. I won't be surprised if 90% of you click off and just decide to reread what I'm not reading. Well, I'll read it next week, but I'm not reading it today. But let's break down what we did read. The very first thing I want to point out is what Nesta says about the prison island itself in like the third sentence. And she says it was exactly as she had pictured it in her trance and even more horrible in person. And that really sticks out to me because in Hosab 73, when Regulus is talking about the Dust Court, which Dust Court prison, that's canon to me. Literally, I will not be, like, even if Sarah writes something different somehow for some reason, even though she threw all that foreshadowing into the prison island being the dust court, I will not believe it because I won't believe it. It doesn't make sense to me. So when I talk about the prison and the dust court and I just kind of talk about it as if it's literally canon in the books, you know why. 
but he says it was a lovely, vervent land in near-permanent twilight. Nothing about the prison aisles seems lovely, vervent. Like, it, it, it doesn't seem like a nice place. Everyone talks about how, like, oppressive it is, how horrible it is, how cold it is, how miserable it is. And it really makes me think about the Ord and how the Ord used to be this, like, considerably, like, lovely, beautiful, like, peaceful place where people would, like, they wanted to bury their dead there. It used to be gorgeous. And now it's, like, cursed. Anna makes a weird comment about it, which, of course, she does. And then it's never talked about. But Nesta makes a very, like, interesting comment when they're in the Ord looking for the mask. And it's, it's stuck out to me because... Because it was just, it was just a weird comment. It was a weird comment to make. And it was dropped in there and then left. And I pick it up every time I think about it. <laughs> but she says, she like, I couldn't imagine roses blooming there. Now, the reason I bring that up in the, in the conversation of the prison is one that seems they, one, they used to be beautiful, but now they're like horrible and oppressive. But there's a kind of a conversation that people like a literary tool, I guess. I don't know what the proper phrasing would it be. It would be, but each sister to conquer each mountain because there's three sister peaks, which yeah, there's symmetry there. I get it. But I don't, I, I, I don't know where Elaine will tie, if she, I mean, I don't, I don't know if she, Elaine will tie in with the dust court per se, because I actually think that's going to be more. I mean, yeah, I think it's going to be more, but I think that the Ord is a place that's going to need to be quote-unquote conquered. And the Ord is like a magical garden, a garden of sorts. And like Nesta makes that weird comment about roses blooming there. And it just makes me think about Elaine, Elaine conquering the Ord. But I don't know. I just want to point out that the Ord and the prison, very similar, used to be beautiful, but now isn't, now cursed. The next thing she says, I think, is heavy foreshadowing. It, she says that the, the very land seemed abandoned, like something great had once existed here and then vanished, like that land is still waiting for it to return. Obviously, Descourt, whatever. I'm brought back to that moment in Throne of Class 27, and when they're talking about the mother, the mother goddess straying through the word gate to Aurelia, found it in need of form and life. And I know I talk about this, like, probably every single episode, but it's because I just, it lingers, okay? It lingers with me. But she says that there was once a civilization, an ancient civilization that was there and then gone. And then we have that same kind of thought with the Book of Breathing and how there used to be mighty beings here and then vanished. So this, like, term that something was here and then vanished keeps popping up at very specific moments, and I've just been making a running tally of those times, and I think they all might tie back to the Asteri and to the Daglin. But I think we'll talk more about that next week's episode when we talk about the Asteri and the Daglin and the Asteri on Perithian, because we're going to do a whole breakdown on that next week. When they're talking about ataraxia, before we know the name of it, Nesta's sword, I just want to, like, point out something that I, I have this as a question, something that I like, I like I, I, my yellow tab, which is a question tab for me. We know that Nesta made her sword trove, but I think it's interesting that Nesta has the ability to create when her power is death. 
And I kind of wonder what that means about the power that she has left from the mother. Because I have two thoughts on this. One is that we don't actually know the, the extent of Nesta's power. We know nothing about it because she never learned it. She never wanted it. She didn't care about it. She didn't want to use it. She didn't touch it. So we have no idea what Nesta had taken from the cauldron other than people were very scared of it. And that it can make things. But we don't really know what she could make because she never dabbled with it. I kind of wish she dabbled with it. But I'm interested to see what that means about the power she has left, seeing as she was able to make something with the power of the cauldron. And she still has a little bit of that power of the cauldron with her. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what she can make, capital M, make. Later, they talk about how they're talking about the inmates, or she's thinking about the inmates, and they say that Cassian had put many of the current inmates and I kind of want to know what happens to the old ones. Do they die? I have it in my head that all of the inmates are immortal, like, like, legit immortal creatures, like Lanthes, the Bone Carver, whatever. But I, like, who do they put in the prison? Because Asriel makes it sound like he is there often. Reese has said he's put many people in the prison. So, like, what do you have to do? who's in the, like, who really is in the prison? Are there regular fae just hanging out in the prison, or is it just regular, is it, like, horrible, deathless creatures? And I really just want to know about, I, I think we're gonna, I think we will know, because if the Dust Court is revived, they're gonna have to make a new prison, right? Unless you put the Dust Court, I don't know, I, like, the prison inmates are gonna have to move they're going to get evicted, right? It, right? Are they going to get evicted? Or are they going to have to give the Dust Court its own new land? How is that going to work? I, I want to know how that's going to work. I, I feel like they could just make a new prison. It, it might be fairly easy. It might even be easier than maintaining the prison that they have now. Maybe it'll be more of a collective thing, because right now only Reese has access to the prison, which I know Mr. Busybody Control Freak would not like having to share the responsibility and maintenance of the prison because he has control of it and he is a control freak. Reese is a control freak. So I don't really see him getting along very nicely with the other high lords and having to just like give them the option of putting people in the prison. Honestly, why does every like <laughs> wow, I just had like such a thought about Reese and how other people must view him. But like he really does swing his weight around, doesn't he? Like, he is a control freak busybody. Because all the other high lords know of the prison, right? And, I mean, these are creatures... These can't just be pe creatures who have caused a ruckus in the night court. So, Reese has been going around all the other courts and dishing out judgment for the other high lords. How does, how does this work? Do they have to ask Reese? Like, imagine... Byron having issues with some creature and him having to like ask Reese, can I put this bad guy in your prison please? And like Reese has to be like, yeah, I guess, or like, no, deal with it your own yourself. How does like I just how does am I thinking am I thinking too deeply into this? Maybe. Move on, Lillian. The I'm just gonna move on. When they're talking about the rules one of the rules was to always hold on to Cassian's hand the entire time. Now, this is something that Reese did when Farah and Reese went to the prison. And 
Farah held on to Cassian's hand when she and Cassian went to the, the prison, but why do they have to? Why? I, I, I mean, we know Sarah is not misogynistic at all, so do they think they're going to get lost? And if they get lost, like, what, what does that matter? Is someone going to take them? And again, where are the prison centuries? Where are the guards? Like, shouldn't they, someone be with them, like, being a guard? Like, you know, in prisons, if you, in movies, they, like, have a guard at, like, every stop. Where are the guards? What are they doing? Who are they? I mean, we do know. They're a shadow and a thought of a spell that was originally there to create the prison. So whoever created the prison, which we'll talk about in a second, created the guards, right? But where are they? For, for, for real, where are they? <laughs> I, I just find it weird that the girls can't just, like, they have to hold someone's hand. Are they going to get lost? Is someone going to snatch them? How does that, why does, how does that work? What does that mean? Anyways, moving on. I just want to point out really quickly that they, anytime I see the word chaos in any of Sarah's books, chaos or void, I always highlight, always underline, always tap, and she does say, like, get the heart before it could unleash chaos. I just want to point that out really quickly and then move on because it's just one of my trigger words and I'm going to point out my trigger words every time I see them. The next thing is that the prison seems, uh, the prison mountain seems to be made of black stone, but we don't get the feeling, that bad, oppressive, painful feeling that we get with the black stone in the clock tower in Throne of Glass. So I'm kind of just interested in, like, why is it black stone? Is it just, like, black because it's dark? Or is it... or what? It's under my impression that the Dust Court, not only is the island actually fairly large, we just... it just looks small compared to Perithian. It would probably be, like, like, New Zealand size, in my opinion. But also, the mountain itself would have been the palace, or the Dust Court home, very similar to Hewen City. Hewen City is in the mountain, right? And it's an entire city. The entirety of the Night Court, the people of the Night Court, reside in the mountain of Hewen City. So it's it's got to be massive. So the Dust Court probably resided in this mountain. I don't see the dust court, like, nothing about the Starborn really scream black walls to me. Like, they don't seem goth to, to me. That really seems like a night court thing to me, but the night court had moonstone, like, silvery, whimsical, celestial beauty, and yet the prison is dark, goth, which does, it, you'd think it would be flipped. So I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about these black walls. Is it really black? What is it? How is it? What was it before? And where did it go? Mm, which we'll talk about, I guess, in a second. The next thing is the iron door with the single rune upon it, which is where Lanthes is. Iron door, obviously I'm thinking about Throne of Glass and those weird cells in the old stone castle that Gavin had originally built. And the single rune upon it. Now, we all know my theory that the Illyrian runes are ward marks, so that what would that mean if we see runes again throughout, especially throughout this chapter, and Cassian doesn't recognize them? Well, I just want to 
point out one, Farah calls them runes on Truth Teller before she learns about the Illyrian tattoos and that it's an Illyrian, anything Illyrian, whatever. The second thing I want to talk about, and I'll, I think I made note of it again further down, but I'll just say it now because we're already talking about it. When Aelin is learning, when Aelin's learning about word marks and then when she's training, teaching other people about word marks, she says herself that you could know even the basics of it and still not know like any little thing can change something. So the word language is very complicated and very vast. So it's very possible that the word, like the word marks that they're seeing in the prison and Cassian doesn't recognize them. It's because Cassian doesn't know word marks. Like they don't know the word language. Does that like, does that mean like they only know a little bit of it, but they don't know the whole of it because runes are runes, right? we'll talk about it again in a second but I want to point out as we go through down the line that they're talking about the blue anise I don't really know how to pronounce it but they say cobalt skin and iron claws iron claws obviously I'm thinking about the witches but the witches don't have blue skin but some of the waverns the wyverns wyverns waverns I don't know how you pronounce it I don't know what the correct pronunciation is have blue skin. That's all I'm saying on that because I don't want to, I don't really want to speculate. I, I think it's really gross when people talk about the Illyrians being, cro- like, being bred from the throne of glass witches and their waverns. I think that's like weird bestiality that I don't want to think about literally at all. Like none of me wants to think about that at all. That it, it, It's ick and I don't want to talk about it nor do I want to think about it. And before we get into the room that the harp is in, there's like a flux stone that she's able to push through. So there's a glamour there. And Cassian himself says, I had no idea there was anything else in the prison other than cells. And I, I genuinely hope we get sometime in the next books, like going through the prison and just like tapping the walls, like poking it with sticks, trying to find more like fake walls. What, like, what, for real, what else is in the prison? Because I'm so annoyed with Cassian. I'm so annoyed with Cassian for big chunks of Akasif because he's like, I had no idea there was anything else in the prison. But Iris was literally talking about how there's more to the prison, there's more to the mountains, they all have like palaces in them. And Cassian's like, I'm tired of a history lesson. Like, let the man speak. He obviously knows something. Let, like, at this point, you not letting Iris slip what he knows, like, that's on you, bud. Like, you should let Iris talk. So then you're like, oh, Iris knows all of this stuff. That's a little sus. Why does he know this? I know Cassian's, like, whole big thing is he's not a very good, like, emissary or whatever. But... Even I feel like that's basic knowledge of if he's talking about something, you should probably listen to see what he's going to let slip. <sighs> but let's talk about the room. Let's talk about the prison. Let's talk about the bo- how I, the bone carver goes into this and the, the floor and all of this. That the harp is in in the prison um, is first seen with Nesta when she's unwittingly scrying and she has a vision. And there's something that parallels that that 
scene, I wouldn't say scene, but what happens with Nesta and then also what happens with Selena when she, or Aelin, when she is in a dream and she goes to see Elena's tomb. Now, the room that Elena's tomb is in directly parallels the room that the harp is in. And it says that there are raised symbols carved onto the floor and she later says that they look like stars and constellations. When Aelin's in the room, she says or in the tomb, she says, in Throne of Glass 25, she tripped on something, and as she staggered, she noticed the floor. Her mouth fell open. It was carved in stars, raised carvings that mirrored the night sky, and the ceiling depicted the earth. Why were they reversed? She looked at the walls and put her hand to her heart. Countless word marks were etched into the surface. There were swirls and whirls in lines and squares. Small word marks made up larger ones, and the larger ones made up even larger ones, until it seemed the entire room meant something she couldn't possibly understand. So, the room that Selena is in was created by Brannon. But that castle was built by Gavin. Gavin built little tunnels to the Truth God's temple, which we already know because we talked about it before that I think that the bone carver is tied to Gavin. So there's, so there's that tie. The bone carver carved every single cell or door, every door to every cell. He says it in Akamath, I think even when they first met him. So and the bone carver put himself in the prison. So she asks, who put the harp here? Who carved this room to look exactly like a room that is in the throne of glass palace that is already tied to him in a way? So I just want to throw out, like, if there's this parallel, and then there's also the parallel that the bone carver was in both worlds, that the bone carver is tied to, you know, everything. So did the bone carver carve this room? Was the woman, the fey warrior that he was mooning over, loved salvation, was she the missing daughter? Could it have been Thea? He says a decision that he made a long time ago is what landed him to choose to be in this prison. We don't, we don't ever find out what that decision was, but I almost wonder if it has something to do with the dust court or with the daglin or with the wild hunt, as we'll talk about next week. And again, you know, Aelin says that they are word marks and, and, Nesta asks Cassian, have you ever seen anything like this? And he says, no. Like I said earlier, word marks can just be really, really confusing. They're a written language, but also can be a spoken language. You know, every single time Aelin really describes word marks, it's almost exclusively swirls and whirls, which is exactly the way that the Illyrian tattoos are almost always described as, as swirls and whirls. So again, I really, I will cling to the Illyrian tattoos or word marks until the day that Sarah smacks me over the head with canon fact. When they're talking about the prison in this room, they say they probably predate this place being used as a prison. What was it before? No one knows. It's always been here, but this chamber, he surveyed the space beyond her. I don't know. This place existed here. Maybe. Part of me wonders if the prison was either built or stocked with its inmates to hide the harp's presence. There's so many per terrible powers here, and the words and this mountain itself. I wonder if someone hid the harp knowing it'd never be noticed, with so much awful magic around it. The bone carver said he, ooh, oh, I'm having this thought now as I'm talking, because I already was like, okay, the bone carver put himself in the prison, but why? He says he did it to hide from his siblings. After the bone carver is gone, 
is when Koshi starts making a little bit of a starts making a little bit of noise in the background. I think that Koshi wanted Breland to get the harp for him. Right? He was using Breland. You know that he was using Breland, but why was he using Breland? Because he needed the harp, right? So what if the bone carver hid himself and the harp from his siblings? Does that make any Oh! Oh, not me wanting to open up my book that's right next to me and start writing in it. Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay, that makes sense. But why, how, and what? I don't even ask me. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, that's just, it's starting to form in my head. Especially because in the live event that Sarah did for the republication of A Court of Silver Flames, she talk, She mentions the bone carver three times and she mentions the prison three times. It's interesting that she mentions the bone carver. I just, I'm holding out all of my hope that we're not done with him and all of his little plans. We get the hint again, which we've talked about a million times. I'm not going to go over, like I said, in my head, it's canon. The prison is the eighth court. The eighth court is the dust court. It's canon to me. It's mentioned again. I'm throwing it out there. Just if you want to, if you're highlighting at home with me, highlight that, circle that. If it's in Akasif, it's important. If it's in the other books, you know, I give leniency that she could change her mind on certain things. But if it's in Akasif, it's set in stone. You might as well consider it canon. So the eight-pointed star. The harp sat upon the rendering of an eight-pointed star. Does the eight-pointed star point to Starborn, the mother? What does it... I, I honestly am... Like, I'm honestly asking... What does it point to? Because why was Nesta's and Cassian's tattoo an eight-pointed star? Nothing about their bargain. It didn't scream anything to do with the dust court. It didn't scream anything to do with the mother. It was kind of like a, like a dumb little bargain that they made. I mean, not whatever, but I mean, it was because he was just like, work out with me. And she's just like, yep. And then he's like, do it and we'll make a bargain. And she's like, fair enough. <laughs> But nothing, like, it didn't have any bearing to the mother, to Starborn, to anything huge and, and gigantic. So why was their bargain an eight-pointed star? Unless it was to call reference to maybe Nesta being tied to, like, having Starborn lineage already before she even went into the cauldron. Like, ugh. I don't know. It just kind of, I just, I don't know. I Part of me wants to be like, okay, maybe the eight-pointed star is a symbol of the dust court, maybe? It just brings me back to what is Nesta's tattoo now, because she's, is it just a redone of the tattoo she already had on her back of the eight-pointed star, or when she makes the bar the bargain with the cauldron, does she get a new tattoo? What is that tattoo? I just, it, I don't know. The stinking bargain tattoos really get me sometimes. The second biggest thing that's left in here, and then the biggest thing we'll talk about next, and probably for the rest of the episode, is she says she has a creeping feeling that she had been brought here not by the cauldron or the mother or the harp, but by something vaster, something that stretched into the stars carved all around them. Its cold, cool, light hands guided her wrist as she picked up the harp. And then later she says that it was trying to bring her back to what, to the room. And my first th thought is void. Void, 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 void. Because it has to be, it couldn't just be, you know, first thought could be dust court, you know, if the dust court members are trapped in the stone, which I don't think any more as of today, I don't think of that. But so it has to be bigger than them. 
and bigger than the mother, the mother of who is the creator of the fae, the wielder of the cauldron in all of its entirety. How who could be who could be more more va- vaster? Void, void, the father of the princes of hell, the one that created all, the waypoint. Like I I want to say it was void. But she says she had a creeping feeling she'd been brought here not by the cauldron or the harp. So, in Crescent City, there is a goddess, Erd. And Erd also means word. Who is also, like, a mother goddess. But, like, I almost wonder if there is a personification of the word, which also could be void. Because there's... You know, in my head, I always just go, okay, the mother is chaos. Chaos is the bride of void. But maybe it's not. Maybe she isn't. Maybe she's someone else. I don't know. It's just like one of those things that kind of spins me around in circles and circles and circles again and again and again, and I still don't have any answers for, and it just makes me need another book to pour over. But let's get into the big, meaty, what caused me emotional psychological damage today because how did I never pick this up when she's talking about the fae and when she's getting the memory of when the harp was last used it says fae screamed pounded on the stone that hadn't been there a moment before so when Aelin creates a portal a, a, a word I don't want to say it's a word gate because it's not a word gate but the portal to see Nehemiah there was nothing, when when the portal opens, it's a swirling black nothing, just like when the gates get opened in Crescent City in the end of House of Earth and Blood. But then, when she, when she closes the gate, it turns back to stone. So that's, so they say, there used to be a door, but now there's just stone. A door. And then it was sealed, just like the way that it gets talked about with the portals and, and gates and stuff that are opened in Throne of Glass. So I used to, you know, obviously later in the chapter, Nesta says, like, are they trapped in the stone? But Nesta, one, they have no knowledge of word gates that we know of. Two, they have no knowledge of other planets or other worlds that we know of. So sometimes I feel like I hate, like I said last week, I hate the term unreliable narrator, but sometimes we're only working with the information that a character whose head that we're in has. And a lot of the times, especially in Akatar, we're working with characters who don't have a vast knowledge of the world that they're in. They're, they're learning. We're with them learning, which is great because it makes it easier for world building and to, you know, there's no just info dumps, which I, me being me, I'd kind of would love an info dump at this point. But there's no info dumps because you're learning with your characters, right? But when you're trying to get critical thinking, you're trying to put piece together these worlds, but we're only at entry level world building, but we're trying to piece together expert world building, it can get really frustrating for me personally. So when she's talking about what happened, she's like, I think that there is someone trapped in here because she doesn't know any different, right? Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So the reason why I don't think they're trapped in the stone is because I think that they're talking about being trapped on Midgard. When she touches the harp, she has the feeling of falling through t- 
time, so she's seeing a memory that was 15,000 years ago, and space. She's falling through space to the other planet of Midgard to see what happened the last time the harp was used. In Hosab, chapter 73, my favorite chapter as in this whole book because there's so much information packed in it that I just want to I'll do my own chapter deep dive for this episode. I'm going to request myself to do it. Regulus is asking Bryce to open the rifts. And he says this, Can't you? The cold voice slithered through the intercom. You are starborn and have the horn bound to your body and power. Your ancestors wielded the horn and other fey objects that allowed them to enter this world, stolen, of course, from their original masters, our people. Our people who built fearsome warriors in that world to be their army all of them prototypes to the angels in this one, all of them traitors to their creators, joining the Fae to overthrow my brother and sisters. A thousand years before we arrived on Midgard, they slew my siblings. Her head spun, I don't understand. Midgard is a base. We opened the doors to other worlds to lure their citizens here. So many powerful beings, all eager to conquer new planets, not realizing we were their conquerors. But we also opened the doors so that we might conquer those other worlds as well. The fae queen Thea and her two foolish daughters realized that, though too late. Her people were already here, but she and the princesses discovered where my siblings had hidden the axis points in their world. Rage rippled through his every word. Your starborn ancestors shut the gates to stop us from invading their realm once more, reminding them who their true masters are. In the process, they shut the gates to all other worlds, including those to hell. I'm not going to read the rest because, I, like I said, I'd like to do my own chapter deep... I'm requesting myself to do a chapter deep dive of this one because I want to do a deep dive of this one, which I really should just get out of Zodiac Academy and and get back to my, my SJM reread and do the reread of Crescent City, but I, ugh. I talked about that the last week. I'm not going to talk about it again. So, it's to my understanding that the horn oh, is, is a can open the gates. I almost want to even think that maybe it could open a gate spontaneously out of nothing, kind of like word keys, which I have a theory. Maybe I'll do a whole episode dedicated to this theory for those people who want my theory episodes. I think that the trove are word keys, essentially, but the horn can open the gates, right? But the harp is what moves the world, the worlds, the order of the worlds, as we learn in the next chapter with Lanthes when he's explaining what the harp is. So you can open the gates, but the harp chooses what you can use the harp to choose what world you want to go to. And so when Micah was using the horn, he what he didn't want it to open to hell. He wanted to open to somewhere else, but it didn't work the way he wanted it to because the last play time, the last, the order of the world got shuffled because the last time it was used, it was used to shut. The, the gate to hell, right? I don't, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense because it's hard for me to explain it all without going like super, super deep into detail. Because it was the last thing that was, that was shut. So that door is just whatever's on the other side. So it went Midgard, then hell. But with the harp, you could change the door, what's behind the next door. But they didn't have the harp, so it didn't change the order of the worlds. It just opened whatever was the last door was in front of it if that makes any sense. So the last time the harp was used, it was used in, I would want to say in tandem with the horn. And we have one daughter who was with the horn and stuck on Midgard. And then I think we're going to have the other daughter who was the one who wielded the harp 
and had the harp. So, so one daughter stayed on Midgard on one side, and the other daughter ended up getting, you know, got shut the gate and then got thrown wherever. Back to Prithian, somewhere else. Maybe it was Maeve. I don't, f I feel like Maeve wouldn't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I can't speculate what actually happened. I'm just, I'm thinking it out, out loud. So the Fae that were stuck on Midgard knew who the Asteri were. As we learn later on in Crescent City, Thea found out that the Asteri and the Daglin were the same creatures, but they looked different. As we know, the Asteri can shapeshift they, or they possess bodies. They look different throughout the years. So the creatures that they had on the Daglin might have looked different than what the Asteri's form were when they first took over Perithian, but Thea found out that they were the same thing, people who had oppressed them and tormented them with the wild hunt and drank their, the magic of the land, like wine. So when they say it was a trap and they were too blind to see, he says basically the similar thing, that they did not know, and then they found out, and then they tried to shut the gates, and they kind of just had, I've said it before on the podcast, I think that them getting stuck was just the lesser of two evils, and they're like, we have to just stop them from traveling worlds. So let's just shut all the gates. And the people who are stuck are the people who are stuck. And that sucks. But it is what it is. I think that's what happened. And the Fae were saying, begging to be let out, let out. And they begged as they tried to pass their children through the solid wall as if it was a portal. Which is how we see them in Throne of Glass. So their children could be spared. Spared from the Asteri. And if you want... I, I think I might have even explained it better on my TikTok. So if you didn't see my TikTok from yesterday, just go and watch the TikTok from yesterday because I feel like I'm not even explaining it right anymore because I know what I believe and I know what I see and I don't know, whatever. But again, like another kind of parallel to the way that Nesta was feeling, she was having this feeling of falling and being thrown, which is very similar to what Bryce feels when she goes through the gate. So I'm going to assume that one daughter was with the harp and had the feeling of falling and being thrown. I think maybe the missing daughter, if it's not gonna, if it's not Maeve, then maybe it will be Nyx, which is the goddess of the time of the trove. So, I mean, if she wielded the trove, she could have been that missing daughter. But we'll, we'll see. Something that I think kind of got subtly foreshadowed, and I think maybe might have been subtly foreshadowed throughout the entirety of Akasif, when they're talking about the blades, you know, there's three blades. So Nesta has, there's Nesta, Gwen, and Emery, but there's also Nesta, Farah, and Elaine, but there's also three brothers. And the way that the sword reacts in this chapter, he says, Ataraxia, Cassian said again, and Nesta could have sworn the blade hanging from her belt hummed an answer. I almost wonder if maybe Cassian will get Ataraxia Reese will get one of the blades and then Azriel will get the cold angry one because he's cold and angry all the time. I almost wonder if maybe her trove might go to the brothers instead. It's just kind of a thought I had as I was building this episode. I'd never noticed the way that it, it hummed an answer to him. So like calling to like in a way. But Nesta does have a fondness for the blade, so maybe she will end up keeping it. But I wanted to just open the door for maybe there is foreshadowing that Ataraxia might go to Cassian. Or Cassian might end up wielding Ataraxia for some reason. And then I'm just going to end here because, like I said, there's this is part one of two. I mean, I'm going to do an outro and we'll do a little bit of talking as I always do. But 
as far as chapter breakdown, I'm going to stop here because the next thing that we get into is Lanthes, and I'm going to be talking about Lanthes, the wild hunt, the fourth item of the trove, and Reese, Reese being a word hound, as a lot of you ended up screaming about at me, as I said you guys probably would, and all of that next week. So I'm going to, I'm just going to end it here because I think that's all I really have to say for this chapter breakdown. I've never ended so abruptly, but I'm ending so abruptly. <laughs> um, I almost don't even like, I feel like I should just not even say anything and just like, literally just cut this episode without me doing my usual spewing nonsense and just let you guys go from like one episode to the next, but I'm not like that. I like to do my spewing nonsense. I just, I never, like, I just, I'm still, I'm still spiraling over the Faye not being trapped literally in the stone of the prison, but rather being trapped on Midgard. And that just goes to show how horrifying and horrible the Asteri once were. Like, I know we get, like, pieces of it, bits of it in Crescent City when they're talking about the old wars and all that stuff, but, like, to really have... A moment in the past where we're actually seeing it happen in real time and how terrified the Fae were that they're literally trying to they're breaking their nails clawing at stone because they'd rather break their nail like I, I'm a person with long nails I, I take pride in my nails um I can't imagine doing like to, to do that you must have like true genuine fear it makes me a little emotional thinking about how horrible Thea and her daughters must have felt in those moments of it's very rare uh, in literature, I think especially, or in media, but in SJM books, usually when a character has to make a bad, a, a decision on the fly or a decision with a lot of consequences, the consequences are usually on to themselves, i.e. Aelin sacrificing herself, Reese sacrificing herself, all that stuff. But to see these characters having to make a, a big decision with horrifying consequences that have bearing on thousands of lives for years and years and years and years to come. Imagine being in, like, the pressure of that decision. Oh, I I truly hope, SJM's kind of talked about it in, in something that I bring up all the time, but in the A Court of Frost and Starlight Q&A bonus content thing that I, I have in my original copy for some reason, she talks about how she has a prequel series on her mind if not already written on her computer. And I I genuinely hope that we get Thea's story in Thea's perspective. Or Thea, Fine and Adis, all of those, like, or her daughters. Like, I genuinely want to know what was going on in that time. And not just because of, like, you know, theory me, you know, I like to put all the puzzle pieces together when it comes to the SGM universe. But I think it would just be, I mean, technically Thea was married to Finan. And yet her and Adis fell in love. So there's just like that heartbreaking, like, I think that Thea and Adis were mates. So like, imagine meeting your mate and they're already married to somebody else. And like those longing looks and touches. And then also like this big war, intergalactic species and like all of the, like, and making these horrible decisions. And then, you know, Adis not being there and then Thea dying kind of in consequence to it. Ooh, I love a good heart. Like, I love crying in books. I like when my heart's been, like, torn to shreds and, and like, is bleeding and broken and at the author's foot. Like, that's, I love that feeling. And I feel like Thea and Adis' story is that. And I kind of, I, if, 
Bryson Hunt and don't end up going back in time as I kind of think they're going to and they don't change like you know everything I I really want Thea and Adis's story and I've said before on the podcast that I think maybe they must have known that eventually you know all will be righted in the world as the serial says and maybe they had that thought in mind they're like we've seen the future or we know what we're supposed to do kind of like Elena with Aelin and she's like I, I know what I need to do so you know this it doesn't negate what they've done, but it also, like, they know it's going to be fixed eventually one day. And that's kind of how I used to see it, but if they're not actually trapped and they're just stuck on Midgard, like, those people are dead. <laughs> Them are gone. They've been, their second light's been eight. Their children's second light's been in. Like, they were, they were a meal, a dessert. <laughs> gone. The, I feel bad for even saying it, but, like, but it also makes more sense that they're stuck on Midgard and not just trapped in the stone, because if they were trapped in the stone, like, imagine 15,000 years later being let out. Ugh. When I think about them, I kind of think about, like, Steve Rogers being stuck in the ice and coming back. You know, the scene where he breaks out, and he's in the middle of Times Square, and he's, like, looking at all the lights, and he's still in his, like, 1920s brain, but the world has just changed. Like, that's how I always thought about it. I'm like, how can you, how are they going to write that? How are they going to fix that narrative? Like, it never made sense to me and how that was going to be fixed, but now it makes sense to me if they're stuck on Midgard and not actually trapped in stone. Like, they've already lived... They they lived their lives on Midgard and had kids and whatever. But they're still stuck with the Asiri and that, that blows because apparently the Asiri were just... I mean, they're not so bad now. I mean, in, in parentheses, they're not so bad now. Like, they're not... The wild hunt is not happening. They've kind of figured out a pretty good system everyone's got their, like, pretty little lie, their ignorance is bliss kind of thing. The Daglin times, they seemed like they were truly horrible, and we're going to be talking about that next week, so I'm going to leave you with that little nugget of something to look forward to, of me just talking about how truly awful things were for <laughs> these fae, <laughs> and all the parallels to it, and finally, a history lesson that we can't I don't even want to, like, yeah, we finally get a history lesson from Reese. But he says it's some strain of mythology, so we can't even count it as truth. Like, (laughs) I'll talk about it next week. So, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And I will see you next week for part two of this. And that's all I got to say. Because I feel like, because I'm literally just going to go on to record next week's episode. So, for me, it'll be like no time. But for you, it'll be a whole seven days. So, I have nothing left to say to say goodbye. Because I'll just see you in a few seconds. (laughs) Goodbye.